Um, that got pretty vulnerable, didn't it? Yeah, it did. And I can see that I'm not alone in anger being the, an emotion that we really, really do struggle with. And if you don't believe me and you think I'm quite a cool, calm, and collected guy, just ask my wife if I haven't been for a run in about five days how I'm feeling. I'm kind of like, all this pent-up anger. Or perhaps maybe after Chelsea is lost to Crystal Palace, then, then I really find my anger is pretty tested out. And so it's quite funny that today I get to preach two chapters on anger. God's anger, but on anger. And it's not because we kind of get together as a preaching team and do rock, paper, scissors, and then like the person who loses gets the most chapters. That's not how it works. Um, but the reason why I think that I got these two chapters on God's anger is because I used to listen to a lot of angry rock music as a kid. And I remember last Sunday as we were sitting up, Carlo and I were reminiscing about all the cool rock bands that we used to listen to. Um, and we were doing this kind of over a cup of Rwandan roast by our beautiful Black Coffee Society. It was really good. But usually white guys born in the 80s love to do it sipping castle lights around the bride. They love to say, oh, do you know that band? Do you know that? Have you got that album? It's kind of a bit of a cult following thing. And I think maybe Ono heard me doing that once, and perhaps maybe that's why he said, hey, listen, these two ang- uh, chapters on anger, it's your turn. But wow, I loved angry rock music as a kid. I think mainly because I had trouble dealing with that anger like we kind of spoke about this morning. I had trouble thinking about it. I had trouble feeling it. I had trouble expressing it. And so I loved this music because it would help me process this emotion, but I think in the same time in a safe, distant, easy way. And my favorite part of any rock song or angry rock song would always come at the end, the climax of the song, towards the end, when all guitars are on distortion, cymbals would be clanging, perhaps there would even be like a rumbling bass Double bass pedals would be tracking full on. Why am I telling you this? Yes. I'm telling you this because, as I said, the two chapters today that we'll be dealing with in Lamentations speak about anger. God's righteous anger, not our earthly, fleshly anger. But then also because I'll be dealing with poetry, a music of Lamentations. It's important to note, though, before we come to today's text, that God's righteous anger results in restoring people into loving, healing relationships with himself and with others. So if you think, hey, I struggle with uh, anger, God's righteous anger is not like our fleshly anger. It results in restoring people into loving, healing relationships with himself and with others. And so I've kind of shared a bit of a glimpse into modern-day rock music. But... We need to understand that Hebrew poetry, and specifically Lamentations that we're going to be dealing with today, is a bit different. It has its focal point in the middle of the song. The climax comes in the middle, not towards the end. And the best way for me to describe this is to show you via a diagram. So I'm going to show you a bit of a slide here. And so you see, we're dealing with five five chapters over these four weeks. And last week, Oni took us through the first chapter. I'll be dealing with the the second and the fourth, um, speaking about God's judgment and anger. And then next week, we've got the focal point, the climax, in Lamentations 3. So if you thought that next week you were like, oh, you know what, I'm not going to come, but I'll come at the end of November, and that way I kind of would have heard three quarters of the series. Don't do that. Come next week instead. And then I'll tell you what, just for good measure, you might as well just come the following week as well, then you hear it all. And so that's why I'll be covering two chapters today, because they're linked. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I was here when Jono did one chapter in 1 Corinthians, he went line by line, and I think we got out of here by about 12.30. So what's how are we going to end this? Okay, how's this going to end? 
you're thinking maybe three o'clock. Maybe we should start an evening service here tonight. That would be pretty cool. Um, but no, that's not going to happen. Please do not lament. <laughs> See what I did there? Do not worry. I will not be explaining each and every line within these chapters. Yes, we're going to read it, but I won't be explaining each and every line. And so you will be out of here in time. What that does mean, though, is that's two implications of that. First one is that I would urge you to go through these texts sometime this week. Firstly, to keep me accountable. And secondly, to see for yourself the richness contained within these songs of lament. Now, before we get into the text and the message for today, we need to examine what we're looking at. So we can go to the next slide. We need to see what we're looking at. Where's the wood for the trees? Okay, so what part of the elephant are we going to be looking at today? And can we see the elephant completely? Otherwise, it could be pretty confusing. And so you know, you, you know me, I love to do a contextual catch-up. I love history. I love context. And so, yes, this section is kind of for me because I love it. Um, but it's also for anyone who couldn't remember what we covered last week. Perhaps you're visiting with us today. Newcomers, questioning non-believers, skeptics, everyone maybe here today, all are welcome here at Rooted Fellowship. Jesus certainly did not, and he does not discriminate, and neither should we. So a very warm welcome to everyone here this morning. Welcome to church. Welcome by on Skak. You're very kind to me. Okay, next slide. We're looking at a little bit of context. It's 587 BC. The southern kingdom of Israel, Judah, has fallen to the Babylonian army. Jerusalem has been completely ravaged, and the majority of her people have been taken captive to Babylon where they have become slaves. The prophet Jeremiah, who is often referred to as the weeping prophet, as you'll see in the next picture, he is thought to be the author of the Lamentations. Prior to this exile, prior to these five chapters that we're going to be reading today, he had been warning Judah about her persistent disobedience in turning away from God, from the God of Israel, for 40 years. And so if you read the book of, uh, prophetic book of Jeremiah, you'll see that he prophesied for approximately 40 years. He lived under the reign of several kings, most of whom were, were evil in the sight of the Lord. And he was severely persecuted and imprisoned for warning about God's coming judgment and wrath. But this coming judgment would ultimately result in the city of Jerusalem's complete destruction and her people either being killed or taken captive. But you know what? The kings, the people of Judah continued to turn their ears away from what Jeremiah was saying. They continued to turn their eyes away from the one true God. And instead, they chose to worship idols and the gods of other nations. And then, when Jeremiah's prophecies came true, the Babylonian army swept through Jerusalem, taking most of Judah's people with, her, with them. And the survivors then in Jerusalem, they didn't even say, hey, Jeremiah... Uh, you know, uh, you were right, we were wrong. Nope, instead, they tried to kill him. And so it's no wonder that he's referred to as the weeping prophet who wept for Jerusalem and for Judah. Chaos, sorrow, death, disease, disorder, hopelessness had broken out in Jerusalem. And it is into this environment that Jeremiah, or the poet of Lamentations, then pens these five poems of laments. The word lamentations actually comes from the Latin word for tears. 
And, and we really get a sense of this as we read these sorrowful words in the book of Lamentations. As I said, each chapter within the book is its own lament. And laments were very common in Jewish history and culture as a genre of poetry. More than 40% of the Psalms are Psalms of lament, crying out to God in sorrow. And this morning, we have the awesome privilege of being able to broadly explore two of them. Praise God. Now, last week, Oni took us through uh, his friend Brandon Barker's five movements of lament as he explored Lamentations 1. And in this chapter, we saw that any, in any biblical lament, God's people firstly, the first movement, firstly, in the first movement, they recognize God's presence and role in their pain and suffering. Now, it's really important to note what kind of pain and suffering we are dealing with as we deal with the book of Lamentations. We live in a fallen and broken world. And because of this, we can experience pain and suffering as a result of a number of different causes. We can experience pain and suffering by just being part of this fallen world. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God and ate from the tree of knowledge, Adam was our representative when all creation fell from God's original creation plan. Sin, suffering, pain, and death enters this world. And so we can experience pain and suffering merely by living in the world. And then we can experience pain and suffering as a result of the sins of others, others in our nation, others in our, our family, others in our proximity. Jeremiah was a God-honoring prophet. And as Ono said last week, I am sure that there were a number of other Israelites in Jerusalem in 587 BC who loved the God of Israel who worshipped him. But because of the sins of their nation, they too experienced pain and suffering. And finally, we can experience pain and suffering as a result of our own poor choices and sin. God remains present and constant in our lives, even as we draw away from him. But he allows pain and suffering as a consequence of our poor choices. This forms part of our sanctification being made into God's likeness. Now you say, maybe that sounds a bit harsh. But you see, when it comes to God, it is done in love, in his righteous anger. The author of Hebrews says in 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 11, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. The pain and suffering that the poet is addressing in the book of Lamentations is the pain and suffering that comes about as a direct consequence of the Israelites continually choosing to disobey God. The first movement of lament is recognizing God's role in our pain and suffering. In the second movement of biblical lamenting, God's people do something else. They respond with emotional honesty to God. That is what Oni took us through last week. Thirdly, God's people then confess their sins genuinely. The fourth movement then involves us identifying sin and false prophets for exactly what they are. And the fifth movement is then crying out to God for true deliverance. This is what we covered last week. And so we come this morning to these two chapters, chapters 2 and chapter 4 of Lamentations, with this background. But before we get into these texts today, let us come before our Lord in prayer. Holy, holy, holy God, we come before you today, Lord, giving you praise and honor. 
We thank you, Lord, for this time, for this opportunity to come and worship you, to set you in the rightful place in our lives, Lord God. Lord, we praise you that you are holy and slow to anger and just. And Lord, you are merciful and gracious too. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, whose name we lift up in this place. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come now, lead us, lead me, lead our thoughts, lead my words, lead our, our worship this morning, Lord God. Or take away any distractions. Draw us deeper and closer into you. Lord, reveal your word to us, your purpose for us. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may have seen it. The title for today's sermon is God's Righteous Anger Revealed and Satisfied. God's Righteous Anger Revealed and Satisfied. Chapter 2 deals with God's Righteous Anger Revealed, and chapter 4 deals with His Anger Satisfied. In chapter 2, though, we get this kind of account of God's righteous anger. But we will see that this anger then results in the first steps of restoring the relationship between him and his people. God's righteous anger results in the first steps in restoring the relationship between him and his people. That's what makes it righteous. Let's read together. We're going to read chapter 2 together. You can follow along the screen. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the inhabitations, the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He's cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy with his right hand set like a foe. And he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes. In the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid its ruins, its strongholds, and he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah, mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord, as on the day of the festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns, says the poet. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, 
Where is bread and wine as they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom? What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss. They gnash their teeth. They cry. We have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we long for. And now we have it. We see it. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let the tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, says the poet, cry out in the night, at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Look, O Lord, and see, with whom have you dealt us? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care, should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned as if to the festival day, my terrors on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Pretty intense stuff, right? This chapter, or in this chapter, the poet emphasizes, as we can see, we've seen it, he emphasizes and highlights God's righteous anger towards his people. It is, in fact, God's wrath and anger that has allowed his people to be defeated and exiled. I'm sure you kind of get that uncomfortable feeling. God's wrath and anger is so difficult for us as Christians because as we saw earlier, fleshly anger is an emotion that so many of us struggle with. And God's righteous anger is often handled badly within the church. As the church, we have too often preached judgment and not grace. And there's a Casting Crown song called Jesus, Friend of Sinners that's a bit of a commentary on the church when it says, people only know, don't know what we're for. Sorry, let me say this again. People don't know what we're for, only what we're against when we judge the wounded. And we don't want to be seen like that. So instead, we overcompensate and we run to verses like Psalm 103, Psalm 145, that speak of the fact that God is slow to anger. And we so often praise him for that. And you know what? We should. I praise him for that. I praise you, Lord, that you are slow to anger. But being slow to anger means that eventually, with persistent disobedience, comes God's righteous anger. And as we've seen, that is exactly what happened in Jerusalem. Jeremiah is thought to have been prophesying for over 40 years before Babylon comes and conquers the city. Most of us in that room haven't been alive, in this room, haven't been alive for that long. And if you have been, we respect you and we love you. 
We often read Jeremiah in a couple of days, if you're a reader, a couple of weeks or months, if you're me. And we go, wow, Lord, that's a bit harsh. But sin and idolatry had been going on for more than 40 years and longer within Jerusalem. King Manasseh had even put up altars to false gods within the holy temple that was dedicated or to be dedicated to the God of Israel. But even as a nation, the Israelites had been repeating acts of disobedience since their exodus from Egypt. If you read the historical books in the Old Testament, you'll see a cycle. Now, CrossFitters have, the, they have this thing called, uh, it's, it's like a training cycle. I think it goes, correct me if I'm wrong, eat, train, sleep, repeat. Is that right? Eat, train, sleep, repeat. Okay. So if that's their cycle, this is the cycle that we pick up in the Old Testament from the nation of Israel. It goes, disobedience, God's righteous anger and punishment, repentance and restoration, repeat. And that's what is so evident throughout the Old Testament. But now God, in his righteous anger, punishes Judah severely, punishes Jerusalem. And in verses 1 to 10, which we've read, we saw the detail of what God, in his righteous anger, has allowed to happen to Jerusalem. We're going to pull up a slide. God's fierce anger is highlighting God's fierce anger. Read with me verse 1. How the Lord, in his anger, has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. And two, in his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Zion, of Ju- daughter of Judah. Next one. Verse three, he has cut down in his fierce anger all the might of Israel. Next slide, please. Verse 21, you have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. The poet recognizes that Jerusalem and Judah are conquered as a consequence of God's righteous anger. God is certainly not the cause of this tragedy. The Israelites' persistent disobedience and sin were the cause of this tragedy. But God, in his righteous anger, allows pain and suffering to fall upon his people. But why? Why does God do this? Well, yes, it is because God is just and holy. And because of that, he requires his people to be set apart. God had entered into an agreement or a covenant, if you're a churchgoer. He entered into this covenant agreement with Moses and the Israelites at Mount Sinai. And he said, if you obey my commands, I will be your God and you will be my people. But if you turn away from me, destruction will fall upon you. And so, yes, that's why he brings his anger. But why else does God bring about the consequences of his righteous anger? How can this devastation possibly restore this relationship? Well, the poet then shows us a glimmer of hope. God's anger moves his people to openly and honestly communicate with him and to call out to him once again. God's anger moves his people to openly and honestly communicate with him and to call out to him once again. In preparing for this message, I came across a 2013 Huffington Post survey, an article that reported a breakdown in open Honest, authentic communication is the number one reason a relationship breaks down. I then came across a quote that says, communication to a relationship is like oxygen to life. Without it, it dies. So I'm a big uh, English Premier League football fan, and uh, for my sins. Um, but in 
January, there's a transfer window that comes up and all the teams kind of try and buy different people and it's like a whole changing of teams. But prior to January, there's a lot of rumors going on. And so like I sit on my phone now, check out all the rumors, who's going where, what's happening, uh, what is being said, maybe this person's going there. And I always get worried when like one of our star players, there's rumors about our star player who like didn't shake the, the coach's hand after the game or, or communication is completely broken out down between Antonio Conti and Eden Hazard. I'm like, <gasps> because I know that breakdown in communication means the breakdown of that relationship. From 627 to 587 BC, God had been speaking directly to the people of Israel through his prophet Jeremiah. But his people stopped listening. And as a result, they stopped crying out to him. God was and always will be constant. But the Israelites started filling their hearts and lives with other things. They even began filling their temple with other gods. And so they stopped crying out to the Lord God of Israel. And now God, through his anger and in his love, makes a way for God's people to respond to him honestly once again. If you go back and read the chapter, you'll see in verses 11 to 19 of the second chapter, the poet firstly expresses his own pain, but then he seeks to comfort Jerusalem in verse 13 honestly sympathizes with her, and then after comforting the survivors in Jerusalem, he urges them to to cry out to their God, their only hope once again. Let's look at verses 18 and 19. Verses 18 and 19. Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion. Let tears now stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, he tells them. Cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your hearts like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him, sign of worship, for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Chapter 2 both reveals and recognizes God's righteous anger towards Jerusalem. It shows us how he then disciplines the people of Judah in his righteous anger. But then it shows us how this makes a way for his people to honestly cry out to him once again in true worship. Next week we're going to go into chapter 3, which speaks about God's, a glimmer of hope and God's faithfulness. But now we we bypass that and we go to chapter 4. God's righteous anger satisfied. Chapter 4, in this chapter 4, we see that it speaks about God's righteous anger that is now fulfilled And in this chapter, the poet contrasts the lives of those left in Jerusalem after exile with their lives prior to God's wrath before the Babylonian invasion. So we're going to call, we're going to read together Lamentations chapter 4. The holy stones lie scattered. How the gold has grown dim. This is talking about the gold that was in their buildings in their temple, how the pure gold is now changed. The holy stones of the temple and the the city walls lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion worth their weight in fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. The prized leaders of, of Jerusalem now completely ruined. Verse 3, even jackals offer the breast, they nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel 
like the ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. There's great need in Jerusalem. Those who once feasted on delicacies, they had so much once upon a time, they now perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. Purple is the the color of royalty and affluence. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. No one mourned. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Their leaders, their people, beautiful. But now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger. It was better to have died who wasted away pierced by the lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of the compassionate woman have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. We have this contrast before and after the exile. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. Verse 12, the kings of the earth did not believe nor any of the inhabitants of the world that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a strong, fortified city with a massive temple. No one thought it could be penetrated, never alone exiled and, uh, and destroyed. But tells us why. This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. There were consequences. They wandered blind through the streets now. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. So away, unclean people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. No one would even aid them, would even help them. The other Um, tribes and nations around them wouldn't bring aid. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders. Our eyes failed ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. They dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near, our days were numbered for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the heavens. They chased us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness, a vulnerable people. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we said, under his shadow we shall live among the nations. That's how it used to be. Rejoice and be glad, the poet then says, O daughter of Edom, speaking of um, the descendants of Esau, who did not inherit the the blessing of Israel, uh, Jacob. Surrounding nation. Rejoice and be glad, you who dwell in the land of Uz, because, but to you the cup shall also pass. You will also be conquered. It's a bit of a prophecy, these two verses. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. And then another prophecy, which we're going to delve into specifically. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, descendants of Israel, is accomplished. It wasn't as they were reading this, but it's a prophecy. It says, he will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, descendants of, of Esau, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. Hectic stuff again. In contrasting Jerusalem before and after the exile, the poet reveals the false gods 
and the idols in which the people of Jerusalem put their hope and trust in. Throughout the entire chapter 4, the poet shows us that not only had the Israelites forsaken the God of Israel, not only had they forsaken God, but they had also began to put their trust and hope in other things. Their kings, their leaders, their priests, themselves, their bodies, their abilities, their kingdoms, and in the very things that they built. They built bigger city walls. They sought their worth in material things, food, and their physical presence. They made their temple more aesthetically pleasing. They got the latest altar decal for their false gods, which they then placed in the temple. And with every brick they built, they became more self-assured, sinful, proud, and less reliant on the God of Israel. But then comes a stark contrast to the life that these Israelites now live. Chapter 4 details the people of Jerusalem's absolute desperation. Now their desolation, their destruction, which is all that they are left with after God's anger has been fulfilled. Jerusalem was a fortified city, and the people of Jerusalem thought that they had God on their side. They'll always have him on his side. They dedicated their temple to him, after all. But you see, the problem is that they weren't worshipping him anymore. In fact, they had even begun offering sacrifices to other gods within his temple. But surely he wouldn't desert the beautiful building they had made for him, right? Surely the massive gates and the city walls would never fall. With hindsight, we think of these Israelites as foolish and arrogant. And yet sometimes I wonder if I think the same way. Yes, I believe in God, but I fill my time with so many other things. My affections are turned towards so many other things. Yes, I love God, but I sin on a continual basis. Yes, I believe that God is in control, and yet I find myself putting my faith in the outcomes of political party conferences or in the outcomes of elections outside of my own country. Or perhaps I'm putting my hope and trust in opposition leaders. Or perhaps my faith is in my rights enshrined in the Constitution. Yes, Lord, I believe in you, but honestly speaking, man, these are the things in which I think I'll find my true identity and security. But they're lies. They are all lies. And in chapter 4, God's fulfilled anger begins to reveal to the Israelites that their idols, their gods, and the things that they put their affections to were lies as well. God's righteous anger revealed and satisfied is a message that is clearly very heavy. And in a sense, that is exactly what the poet of these two chapters wants us to feel. Remember, the purpose of lamenting is to sit with an emotion, to feel it. And next week in chapter 3, the focal chapter within this book, we're going to find some hope in God's faithfulness. But don't worry. Rooted Fellowship is a gospel-centered church. We believe in the hope of the gospel. And so I don't believe that I can talk about God's righteous anger revealed and satisfied without talking about the cross of Jesus Christ. Because at the cross of Christ, God's righteous anger was also revealed and satisfied. 
Let's read chapter 4, verse 22 again. Chapter 4, verse 22 again. This is a bit of a prophecy. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, nation of Israel, believers of God, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer, but your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. In this verse, the poet speaks of, and he essentially prophesies about a time that those people of God, those Israelites, the daughter of Zion, will no longer be in exile. And you know what? That happened. They returned to Jerusalem. But the prophet also prophesies about a time when the nation of Israel will no longer be in exile. But he also prophesies about a true time of deliverance, when for eternity God's people will be with him because of the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ hanging on a cross. And church, this morning I have the good news to tell you that that happened as well. He speaks about the hope of the gospel. Tetelestai, it is finished, cried Christ. God's redeeming work was accomplished. And then Jesus Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit, was raised three days later and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Amen. But the poet also prophesies and speaks about a time when Jesus Christ will physically return to earth and be united for eternity to his followers. A time when all pain and suffering for these believers shall cease. And good friends, that time is coming soon. However, the poet also speaks of a people, those who do not know God, the daughter of Edom, who also will be judged and punished and who will experience suffering and death and complete exile from God forever. As we read these laments and this book in context this morning, we, we get a sense of just how weak the Israelites were. They were unable to live under the law, to serve God in their own strength. And church, honestly, this morning, when we try and love and serve God in our strength, we see just how weak we are too. Often as preachers, we, we have two messages for believers and unbelievers under an application section on any given Sunday. But this morning, it's the same message. When we are confronted with just how holy, gracious, and slow to anger the loving Lord is, and when we become aware of just how weak, sinful, and corrupt we are, it doesn't matter whether we're believers, long-time believers, new believers, or whether we're searching for the truth. When we are confronted with these two truths, we are driven to the wide open arms of Jesus Christ. These two realities drive us into the loving and welcoming arms of the Lord Jesus. Romans 3, 21 to 22 in the New Living Translation states, but now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. Verse 22, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. Paul then goes to write in the fifth chapter of Romans, verse 8. You may know this one. And he says that God shows his love for us 
in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Yes, God is slow to anger. Yes, he is holy. Yes, he is just. But he is merciful and gracious. Talk about a loving God. This morning, if you are a believer and you hear this message, let us join in one prayer of praise to God the Father, who is holy, just, slow to anger, and mighty to save. And let us thank him for sending Jesus Christ into this world to stand in our place, to die the death that we should have died, and to take the punishment of suffering that was meant for me and that was meant for you. And if you're searching for the truth here this morning, and perhaps you feel like you've heard it, then my prayer is that you would pray a prayer of repentance and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We will have a, people, uh, we'll have a number of people up here after the service if you'd like someone to talk with or to pray with. And so the band is going to come up and lead us in a response. And as they do, we just want to come before you, Lord, in prayer. First of all, Lord, we just want to praise you for your word. Lord, we thank you for a time and a place that allows us to read your word freely, Lord, to engage with it, to wrestle with it, to handle it. We praise you for that, Lord God. But Lord, we just, we love you, Lord, and we want to come before you now, Lord, and say thank you that in Jesus Christ, you provided a way for your anger to be revealed, to be satisfied, Lord, and to pay the price for us, Lord God. Lord, we just thank you and love you. And Lord, we just want to ask right now that your Holy Spirit would come and lead us in this time as we respond to this message. Stir in our hearts, Lord God. Lord, we pray for those in our lives who maybe don't know this message. I pray for those, Lord, who are wrestling with this truth. I pray that you would break down walls, Lord. Remove scales from our eyes, Lord God. Stir in us, Lord, a hope for you and your plan in our lives, Lord God. A hope for this nation, a hope for your people, Lord God. That starts with, that started with you, Lord Jesus, that involves us, but Lord, it ends with you as well. We say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Holy Spirit, come. Thank you that you are mighty to save, Lord God. Lord, as we go out into this week, we pray that we would see those who need to hear your message of love, salvation, and hope. May we be the people that share your love this week, Lord God. We cry out this in Jesus' name.